0: It's fourth estate for the week beginning Monday the 18th of May, live on 2SER Radio and across the Community Radio Network, your weekly look at the world of journalism and the media. My name's Jack Fisher. Tonight, the 2015 federal budget. How was it covered by the media and what blow did it deal to journalism meets academia site, The Conversation? Malcolm Turnbull reckons ABC presenters Lee Sales and Emma Alberici are too aggressive. And Facebook is going to change the way you read BuzzFeed and The Guardian. Could we all be reading all news in Facebook sooner than we think? Well, joining me in the studio this evening are Rob Stott, news editor at BuzzFeed. Rob, how are you? Well, thanks. And we've also got Lisa Visentin, journalist at Sydney Morning Herald. Lisa, hi. Hi. And joining us on the phone, Andrew Jaspin, editor of The Conversation. Andrew, hi, how are you?
1: Yes, good and very cold here in Melbourne. <laughs>
0: I can imagine. Now, as always, if you have got something to say about what we're discussing, you can get in touch via Twitter. Our handle <coughs> is Fourth Estate AU. all letters, no numbers. So, the 2015 federal budget. It happened last week and reporters from all around handed over their phones as they went into the customary budget lockup. BuzzFeed was in the Parliament building. Rob Stott... What does the lockup actually involve?
2: Uh, it's huge. It goes for about six hours. We went in at about, oh, actually seven hours, I think. We went in at one thirty. No, six hours, sorry. We went in at 1.30, got off at 7.30, uh, it's, it's long, it's intense, there's hundreds and hundreds of journalists there. Uh, I have to give up my phone, I have no access to the internet, I do a lot of, lot of reading of very dense budget materials
0: and hopefully come out with a couple of stories at the end. Yeah, cool. Andrew, can you tell us a bit about why we have a lockup in the first place?
1: Can I just interrupt? If Rob's talking about that, could you give us 10 reasons why we have the lock-up? Uh, or I can... 10 things that happened to you in the lockup?
2: We certainly considered writing that, but we didn't get enough time. We had too much serious, important journalism to do.
1: Well, seven hours isn't en- enough for ten, <laughs> 10 reasons. Take us Sorry, back, what was Andrew. The
0: yeah, the question, the question. Why do we have a lockup in the first place?
1: Well, um, it's frankly an out-of-date, both ritual and um, reasoning uh, for it. It was really to do with the fact that um, people, first of all, took uh, quite a bit of time to read the stuff. The idea was to actually then um, not only read it and digest it, but then to have it all ready for the next day's paper. So you could actually, you know, really come to terms with what the budget meant. Now, I think it's a little bit out of date, though, um, Michelle Grattan, who's in the lockup um, for us, we had a team of six in there, um she she actually still approves of it because she says she can actually question treasury officials and she can quiz people and get her story right because it is a complicated statement. Having said that, uh, the ritual is 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 all a little bit um, a little bit passe in so far as. Most of the budget, a lot of the important things, are not leaked as it used to be. And people used to lose their jobs for leaking, by the way. But now it's just actually handed out to favoured newspapers, largely news court papers, ahead of the budget as part of selling the economic message. Uh, but that that was fundamentally the reason, which was you know to, to give you time to, to come to terms with very complex economic statements.
0: Lisa, that's got to be quite a surreal feeling for a journalist these days to um, actually have a set time and, and sort of level playing field where people don't have to compete to be the first out there.
3: Yeah, it's t- quite a delightful uh, situation to find yourself in, I think, um, given that these days we're filing always for an immediate online rolling deadline. You're always um, striving to get there first. Um, so to have seven hours where you can uh, sit down um, with your all your mobile devices and technology removed from you forcibly uh, and to forensically go through a piece of what is, uh, from what I've been told, just incredibly dense uh, do- documents, I think I think that's one reason, perhaps the biggest reason, to keep the lock-up in place, antiquated though it may be.
0: Rob, what's it like? Is it soothing coming to... Away yeah, your... it really is. It was
2: it was nice. It was actually surprisingly was relaxing. Like to be being my on phone. a retreat. It was <laughs> it was like it was like being out somewhere in the middle of the woods with no access to the internet. It was great. Um, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really nice luxury to be able to sit down for six hours and go through this this document and not have to worry about rushing a story up. We still did rush our stories up. You know, we, we tried to, to get things up online. Basically, as soon as that seven thirty uh, embargo lifted, but for the most part, it was it was quite uh, sort of relaxing, and also really nice to have access to the uh, to the treasury officials and to the to the um, public servants there who could give you information that you don't normally have access to. Now, can I, about- just add, can yeah. I
1: just add one point, which is this: um, Let's not forget there is an enormous amount of media management here. I mean, first of all, you submit your names; they, they get sort of approved. You go into a room. You, there's this whole sort of secrecy issue, veil that comes down. You get fed, you know, food and drinks. You get really cosseted, looked after, and fundamentally, the the aim is to make sure that you really understand the government of the day's economic statement. Now, that's fine, but it's a little bit like um, going into an exam room and you're asked to, you know, hand in your your phone and your calculator and anything else, so that you can't, as it were, ring a friend or get advice from anyone. So it is really making sure that you don't call, you know, somebody. You can't use your phone to then say, you know, to ring up a special and say, can this be right, you know, because you just don't have access to it. So it is a a gigantic form of media management. And, yes, you do get to understand the government's case, but uh, you don't really get to, to speak to, you know, the opposition or to anybody who might, you know, query or question uh, what's what's in that statement? So I think that just has to be borne in mind.
2: Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't leave you room for a lot of context. Yeah. You know, you don't get to you get you get access to the officials. You get access to uh, course, yeah. to people like that, but you don't get access to say last year's documents, for example, which might give mm. you a better sense of what certain cuts in certain areas mean.
3: Or experts, I guess, in the field who might yeah. be able to yeah. uh, critique exactly it for I mean. you and break it down. But then I guess that's also why we have uh, budget coverage that doesn't just follow on to the Wednesday, but also for the rest of that week, particularly as um, journos continue to pick through the, the, the more subtle areas of the document.
1: Yeah, but the whole aim is to get one message out. and You've seen what's happening yeah, in the absolutely. polls. It is to get a very quick poll reaction so that you know essentially it's thumbs up or thumbs down. That's what uh-huh. you know, punters initially want. However... You're absolutely right um, that what happens during the week, and this happened last year, is people began to unpick it, and then you sort of you know, really understood a lot more about what, what the rationale really was behind the budget. And in this case, I think everyone knows it was very much a political budget.
0: Because, Rob, there was some suggestion that this year, for the first time, all the questions would need to be put to Treasury officials in, in writing, I think I read. And that was seen to be a media management thing again. How yeah, did that, that play out? Well, that
2: wasn't my experience. No. Um, yeah, I was given access to plenty of officials, and I and I was able to to question them. Uh, pretty frankly, you okay. know, they they they're very careful with their answers. They certainly uh, avoid the politics. You know, they they obviously stick to just the policy. But no, I had pretty uh, pretty good access to the officials.
1: And by the way, Michelle Gratton, and I asked her the same question. She said she saw treasury officials. She didn't put anything in writing. She asked to see them. She saw them and had briefings. So. Uh, That's exactly right,
0: Rob, from Michelle's Mm. point of view. Okay. Now, prior to the budget announcement, there was a high school student taking a selfie with Joe Hockey made news all around the country. Then, after the release, social media was abuzz with jokes about ABC journalists who were reporting from the chilly courtyard of Parliament House. Wollongong University media lecturer Sue Turnbull told the Sydney Morning Herald that this was a game where the spectators were perhaps more interesting than the match. Lisa, how interested do you think people are in the budget this year?
3: Oh look, I think this is the case every year, um, but particularly this one where, where Tony Abbott described it as going to be a dull budget, which which I don't think in, in fairness it was, um, but it perhaps wasn't as divisive as last year. Um, so that means I mean the, the attention then turns to to the to the spectacle of the budget itself, and certainly the ABC took the cake with putting their journos out in the the freezing Canberra weather. Uh, I'm not sure in the end why they, why they exactly did that. It seemed like more uh, more of a challenge than than they needed to to put upon themselves. Um, but yeah, I do. I do think in in a budget that doesn't really have that much excitement around it, uh, inevitably it, it turns to the the spectacle that is the kind of ridiculousness of a, of a seven hour lockup, and freed journalists out on out on the playing field afterwards.
0: Speaking of spectacle, the last time we had Buzzfeed in the studio. <laughs> You guys had got yourselves exiled from Parliament House, we heard, for having taken photos, which is strictly forbidden. I'm glad to see you were allowed back in.
2: We were allowed back in. Yeah, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't at BuzzFeed at the time. Uh, but yeah, no, we had no problems getting back in last week. We uh, we sent a team of four down, which is the first time we've actually done it uh, for the budget, and you know, we got away without any, without too much trouble.
0: Good to hear. Now, the budget was good news for some and bad news for others. Andrew, the budget was not good news for your website, The Conversation. As Christopher Pine said on TV last week, The Conversation was set up during the last Labour government and it's received $3.5 million from government to date and Christopher Pine reckons it's time. The Conversation was self-sustaining. Andrew, how will this funding cut impact The Conversation's reliance on its funding partners?
1: Um, well, look, just, just a couple of things there. Uh, one thing is um, that money dates back to 2010. It was really... To help us build the site and and you know get get um, get the conversation on the road, as it were. Um, the second thing is that um, that we made it very clear to the government that um, that uh, we could not be self-sufficient by 2015, which is what the government insisted we we should be. Um, we're actually not far off from it. We 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 put a bid in for what's called uh, continuation of project funding for two more years till 2017, and we. We're quite happy to swear on a sack of bibles that we wouldn't require any further government funding after 2017 and the reason for all this is you may ask yourself why would we go to the government well it's because we're not for profit um if we were a for-profit organization we'd be going to venture capitalists and investors etc but we can't raise money in the money markets we we literally raise it through um government and universities now The government already funds to the tune of about 14 or 15 billion a year universities and research uh, organizations who we entirely work with. So um, from our point of view, um, we were just really uh, asking for an extension, for a collaboration with a sector that the taxpayer already funds. Um, In terms of your question, uh, what this means to us. well it leaves us with a $1 million a year uh, gap in our funding, which, by the way, is 25% of our funding, uh, or our budget, I should say. Uh, the vast, the, the vast uh, majority of it comes from universities. Um, so what's happened? Well, first of all, um, our readers have been very generous and, and um, have um, you know, risen to the challenge to, to a certain extent. We're in talks with uh, our university partners to see if there's anything more they can do to help. Um, And we've got a few other plans uh, that we're working on. So, you know, we we, we did think there was a strong chance this government wouldn't want to support, which, by the way, I'm very uh, depressed about for this reason alone. It's not just a money issue, but I just think a site like The Conversation depends on having bipartisan support in the same way that the Liberals and Labour and everybody else, I think, largely supports the university sector. And as I said, they are our our partners. and, And I'm just... Sorrow that we've we've lost that sort of bipartisan
0: support. Okay, Andrew. Now Christopher Pine referred to the conversations. Venture. Sorry, I should mention you're venturing into Africa uh, this month. Um, you've also gone into the US and the UK. Mm-hmm. Now he's referred to that as being proof of your being su- self-sustainable. Sorry. Is that a fair assessment of the expansion?
1: No. I mean, he he knows and his department officials know because, you know, we get quizzed about all this. There are very strict issues around the use of Australian taxpayer money. Our money is just used here in Australia because it is Australian taxpayer money used to develop what we do here. In each of those cases, they are funded locally. Or in the case of Africa, that's actually funded uh, largely through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation out of the U.S., but you'll know that Bill and Melinda Gates have a real interest in in Africa and making sure there's a better platform to discuss the, the, the kinds of problems that that continent faces. In the UK it's uh, partially funded by the British government uh, and by 44 universities. In the US it's fully funded by six foundations and we hope in turn uh, universities will come aboard but each one of those are quite separate organizations although we're obviously joined as, as being part of a family. So that is not the case that, you know, we have the money to be able to launch elsewhere. We we, we literally, each one of those is to a certain extent um, independent of Australia, although it all operates on the platform that we built here.
0: Okay. Rob and Lisa, not-for-profit journalism, do you think there's a future for it? I mean, obviously the conversation have done quite well with the university partnerships. Yeah, is there a future for not-for-profit I mean, journalism?
2: Uh, I think it's very tough. In, a, in what is already a very crowded marketplace in Australia, along with the Fairfax and the News Court mastheads, which, which are in every capital city. You've also got uh, BuzzFeed, also uh, the Daily Mail, the Huffington Post are coming out here. There's It's a very crowded market, marketplace and it's only getting more and more competitive. So I think uh, a smaller site like The Conversation, it's, it's a shame, but yeah, I think it's going to be a struggle for them in the future.
0: What do you think, Lisa?
3: I think one of the biggest problems uh, that Australia faces, and perhaps Andrew can talk more about this, but compared with somewhere particularly like the US, is that Australia doesn't have an endowment culture, it doesn't have a donation type culture that sees uh, things like the conversation as really important infrastructure in the media landscape and worthy of uh, keeping alive and keeping um, uh, like uh, publishing, whereas in the US, I think they really do have that. And when newspapers are on the precipice of going under, someone steps in, whether it's a, uh, a rich tycoon and sort of saves them at the last minute or whether it's, it's a university. But there, there does seem to be this absence of um, throwing money at something that is really worthwhile having
1: in Australia.
0: Andrew, did yeah. you want to respond to that?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, for example, we have six foundations in the U.S. supporting us. Um, we do actually have one foundation supporting us here, the Maya Foundation, but that is for a project in, uh, in Indonesia. We, they have funded one editor in Jakarta for us. So you're absolutely right that, you know, there isn't the same culture here, which is why, by the way, we, we have to go to the likes of government. I just wanted to respond to, Rob, your, your concern about our future. Let me reassure you and any listeners Uh, we're actually going to be okay and not only that we're going to be much stronger in the future because uh, come 2017 each one of these sites when they're up and running will be paying a a fee back to us to help cover our costs because we can't shoulder all the costs here in australia and each one of them operates on our platform so once they actually are up and running and they're healthy and they can contribute uh, we're going to be in a pretty strong position the second thing is that our site um, is currently we're receiving about 2.6 million visits to the site a month, unique. That is, I mean that that's way bigger than virtually every other site in Australia that isn't part of a legacy media play. So um, we're, we're not in bad shape, and uh, our model is quite different to your model and um, obviously the Fairfax and News Corp models. We we don't take advertising. We don't have to drive clickbait to get uh, advertising. Uh, or to get eyeballs to, to then buy advertising. We, we've got a very, very different model. So, Rob, thanks for your concern, but I'm, I assure you we'll be, we'll be well and truly established and players for some time to, be, to come.
0: You're on 4th Estate, we're speaking with BuzzFeed's Rob Stott, Lisa Vizenton from the Sydney Morning Herald, and on the phone, Andrew Jaspin, editor of The Conversation. So, in the news business, it's been called the death of the homepage. Many of us are no longer going to the homepage of news websites. Instead, we're coming in through Facebook, through links and through our friends. Now, Facebook has finally announced a new change that it's calling Instant Articles. Basically, where you're currently left waiting eight seconds on average when you click through to a news article on Facebook, and yes, they did time it, with Instant Articles, Facebook will be letting news organisations publish their stories direct to social media, and The Guardian and BuzzFeed are among the first outlets to sign on. Rob, is Facebook's Instant Articles the kind of access to audiences that most media organisations have dreamed of? Yeah, I think it's
2: just a reflection of uh, media organisations going where the audience is. Uh, As you say, the homepage is dying. It's dying slowly, and it's actually dying a lot slower in Australia than it has around the rest of the world. People in Australia still do visit homepages more than they do in a lot of other countries. But yeah, the, the audience is on social media now. They're on Twitter, they're on Facebook, they're on Reddit. And so yeah, we've got to go where they are.
0: So I guess the question is what sort of revenue streams they might actually find themselves compromising by doing this. What do you reckon, Lisa?
3: Yeah, I think uh, in general, this uh, embedding of uh, content directly to Facebook is something that the jury, being both you know consumers and also people that work in the media, is out on until we actually see how this works. Because I think that is one of the biggest issues, is that you are, I guess, jeopardising your revenue stream by putting your content out there for free. Uh, but at the same time, you're also getting more eyeballs on your content. So it's really just uh, weighing up the balance at this point, I think, and seeing what it looks like when it rolls out.
0: Never really thought about this before, but when I read the news in my RSS reader, probably one of the few people... <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> who still has one. <laughs> ...that
0: uncore, Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not seeing the, uh, the ads. But yeah, do you think it could be their own undoing, Rob?
3: Um,
2: I don't think I don't think Facebook or the media organizations would would get involved in something like this without uh, thinking about it very hard I mean I don't really know a lot about the revenue side of of any business that I've worked out to be frank that's never been something that I've worried about um, as long as I get paid once a month um, so yeah I, I I'm, I'm certain that this is something that both Facebook and the media organizations who they've partnered with have thought about a lot uh, I don't think they're rushing into it I think you know they're trialing it it's a bit of trial and error see what works see what doesn't and you know I'm sure eventually they'll settle on a system that that works for both the audience and for the publisher, because that's the, really the only viable system.
0: If we reached a point where media organisations really cannot afford to not be on board with instant articles?
2: You have to be on social media, absolutely. Yeah. You have to be. Like the, it's, it's a, I know it's a huge chunk of BuzzFeed's audience. It's a huge chunk of uh, any online publication's audience, really, is, is, uh, is social media. So if you're not there, you, know, you might as well be stuck in the 1990s.
3: Yeah, you can't afford not to be somewhere where your competitors are. So now that we've got heavyweights like New York Times and you know, BuzzFeed um, pioneering this area, others will follow, absolutely.
0: Andrew Jaspin, does the same go for you? Uh, a lot of your audience coming in through Facebook?
1: Uh, oh yeah, no. I mean, Facebook are probably our one of our biggest distributors. Um, I mean, let, let, just a couple of things. Rob made an interesting point about going back to the 1990s. I think this in the 1990s there was a big sort of discussion in the early 2000s about whether newspapers put their content up on onto their online sites or not, and that was kind of it's a kind of a similar moment. You put your content up on Facebook, and we've got to remember Facebook is read by 1.4 billion people, you know, daily pretty well. I mean, you know, it is a seventh of the world is, is reading it. And they just outnumber every other distributor by, you know, 10 to 1. I mean, there's nothing else, including Twitter, even close to them. What what this is about, this is not about um, Facebook actually wanting to, you know, essentially make money out of the New York Times, The Guardian, and everybody else. This is about wanting Facebook to become the place that you get all your information, you know, both your news, but also your social news, et cetera. So it's just... Keeping people very sticky to to that to their site, and then in time they can they have power over over that, and you know they can actually introduce if they wanted to new new mechanisms uh, to monetize that audience, which which I think they'll do. But in our case, we have a slightly different model because, as I said earlier, we don't actually carry advertising. Um, we distribute all our content for free under something called Creative Commons. And what we've actually got is is kind of our own protected ecosystem to a certain extent. It's not protected, it's actually an open system, which goes as follows. We we have now 14,000 sites globally using our content on a regular basis. And this has come from nowhere, which gives us currently a global readership every month of 23 million of our content. And that's just going to grow because we've only just launched in Africa 10 days ago. We've got a completely different distribution system, but yes, do we use Facebook? Of course we do, and we'll continue to do so, but our motivation for doing this is not one of, you know, where are we going to get our revenues in the future, because we have a completely different business model.
0: You're on 4th Estate. We're speaking with BuzzFeed's Rob Stott, Lisa Vizenton from the Sydney Morning Herald, and on the phone, Andrew Jaspin, editor of The Conversation. Yesterday, Communications Minister Malcolm Turnbull made a special appearance on Channel 10's Bolt Report where Conservative columnist Andrew Bolt took him to task on the age-old question, is the ABC biased? Well, Malcolm wasn't going to be drawn on that one, but he did have some words for ABC presenters Lee Sales and Emma Alberici. He described recent budget interviews by Sales and Alberici as very aggressive and recommended a more forensic approach for their interview style. I've got to say... Turnbull seems to love telling journalists what they should be doing. Last year he was criticising young journos for relying on Google rather than wearing out the shoe leather. What's that about, Lisa?
3: Oh, look, I think Turnbull is normally uh, pretty good in this respect. His his comments are normally uh, pretty reasoned and I note that that that, um, criticising the journalist for the the shoe leather thing was a bit of an off-the-cuff comment rather than something that he really uh, fleshed out. Um, but I just think this, this idea of uh, criticising what are some of the best political journalists, if not the best political journalists in the country, for being too aggressive uh, is is beyond the pale. And the fact that it was made on a Bolt show, Bolt being someone that has... Uh, prov- he, he and his cabal, mostly on the 2GB, have just provided basically a, a wonderful forum for their like-minded audience um, ideologically favoured politicians to 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 put forward their views without really too much probing whatsoever. So it's uh, it's it's absurd.
0: So he's waded into a bit of a minefield here in that a few years back there was a Liberal staffer who referred to Lee Sales as a cow after her blistering interview with Tony Abbott. That was in 2012, I believe. He was called out on it and he apologised. And now George Negus has wondered aloud whether Turnbull would have made the same criticism of himself, George Negus, or Kerry O'Brien in his time. Elise Sales and Emma Alberici... Are they really a more aggressive type than their predecessors, Rob? Uh, no, not
2: really. I don't think so. Uh, you know, I, I watched the interviews and certainly they were aggressive, uh, and that's probably not always a bad thing. You know, there's certainly diff- there's different types of interviews. Uh, you know, sometimes it's about taking a soft approach and, and just finding out what a person has to say, and sometimes it's about putting the hard questions to them. And I, I thought that's what they did, and I thought they did it well.
3: Especially in a post-budget interview.
1: I don't agree. Uh, sorry, Rob, I don't agree as well that they were aggressive um, last year, let's not forget, we were, we were painted the nightmare scenario by this government. This year, we were given a fairy tale story about how wonderful things are. I just think we need grown-ups who can tell us you know, what's what. And I just thought their questioning was absolutely fair and right for journalists to do.
0: Fair enough. Well, that's it from us on 4th Estate this week. Don't forget you can check out all our podcasts on the 2 website. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. My name's Jack Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week.